Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a big show for you today. It's going to be pretty awesome, actually. It's uh, Dr. Stacy. It's your last show. It is my last show. Racking off to San Francisco. Yeah, I'm excited about that, but a little bit sad about leaving uh, uh, the Triple R community. I know we we're just getting you to the point where you're trained up. <laughs> Don't you hate it when people do that? I know. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you too. Uh, you're going to have a bit more space to your, uh, to your right now. This will, yeah. you know, not quite an empty chair. but Yeah, but a bit sad too because, you know, it, when somebody laughs at your jokes or finds things to laugh at your story you didn't know about, that's really all, that makes the show much yeah. more interesting. And I told you you'd find someone who would laugh at your jokes sooner or later. Yeah. It just happened to be Stacey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also have Dr. Scarlett in there. You've been a guest a few times on the show. You've come in to help us out as one of our co-hosts as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, you're not allowed to talk about bees ever again. I know. It's kind of disappointing, <laughs> but I'll find something else. We'll be okay. So uh, for those of you who don't know her, uh, Scarlett Howard is a researcher at Monash University doing some really cool stuff about bee cognition. That in itself is something we can unpack another yeah. day. Well, we unpacked it a few weeks back, but uh, it's good stuff. But yeah, welcome. Welcome to be part of the team. Thank you. Now, uh, we're going to start off with some news. Uh, I'm going to start with my news. Ooh. Good. Oh, you've know, got news today. I've got news. Uh, right. Look, this is a big deal. Uh, I've been it's working. Be no, it's not astronomy. Wow. No, it's female body parts, Ray. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Triple R, uh, with support from the Hudson Institute, have agreed to put on a live show in front of a studio audience at the end of this month, 26th of March, specifically on endometriosis. Oh. Which is something, you know, I'm very passionate about promoting. It is Endometriosis Awareness Month, March. Some people might not be aware of that, but it is. And this is a, a shocking illness that affects so many women, something like 10% of women. And the number that are undiagnosed, just in pain for decades, is phenomenal. So we're doing an entire show on that. We'll have someone from Endometriosis Australia. We will have um, a expert in sonography and uh, you know detection um, coming out from South Australia which will be great we'll have a surgeon from um, the team at Epworth who leads one of the key centers there in Endo coming on and then we'll have a couple of patients as well so subscribers to Triple R this will all be available through the website in the next few days we'll be able to get tickets to come along and look, you're gonna have to look at me and that's you know I'm sorry <laughs> but it'll be myself and Dr. Jen um, oh, we'll be running that show um, with a live audience in our performance space, which, if you haven't been there before, is just awesome. And Stacey's looking at me funny because she's not been in, <laughs> not been allowed in. Uh, but the, um, the yeah, the space is great. It'll be a great conversation and a real good opportunity for people to learn more about endometriosis. And now. Our sort of pledge, which I made late last year on the show, to talk a lot more about this illness uh, in 2023. Yeah. That's my news. That sounds good. What do you three got, Ray? <laughs> um, well, nothing. To, I can't follow on that. It's just, yeah, not a chance. So um, I actually, this caught my eyes mostly because of the name, but there is the Schmidt Ocean Institute, which funds research for deep, water, deep ocean research by... It's founded by Eric and Wendy Schmidt, and I didn't know who that was, and then I looked up, I'm like, oh, Eric was the CEO of Google. Anyway, <laughs> but <you> <laughs> um, what they have done is they've funded a research vessel uh, in the past that's discovered over 50 new marine species, and they've had hosted more than 1,100 scientists on it. And that was their old ship. Well, they just are, their, their new ship is now setting sail. Their old ship was called the Falcor which is, of course, named after the flying dragon dog thing in Neverending Story, yeah, which is yeah. kind of cool. So the um, the new ship is 30 meters long, and it was creatively named Falcor 2. Oh. <laughs> um, but this this new ship is um, was uh, was just refitted in Vigo, Spain, is now being tested in the in the Caribbean. But um, their what I found was not just the name of the Falcor, but their their first mission is actually examining um, underwater volcanoes because they're looking at the old vents of these hydrothermal towers, which are kind of limestone covered. And what's interesting about them is their chemical makeup is believed to be very similar to life began on earth. 
And the microbes in this area are just fascinating yeah, because wild. they're wild. They, they can live at extreme temperatures and pressures that normal life couldn't. And so that's the, the first thing they're working on. And I was just going, wow, this is like, I don't know, the Mercedes-Benz are research vessels. It's got a modular platforms, 105 square meters of laboratory space, 150-ton crane, two moon pools, a high-resolution ocean deep mapping system for a global effort to map the entire ocean floor by 2030, and a microplastic water flow-through system for studying microplastics, and it just goes on and on. And what an amazing ship, and it's got 98 berths on it because they want to get even more scientists visiting and going 98 through this. I know. That, that's like larger than some research well, institutes on when, land. When they say births, remember, we're talking like bunk beds or, I'm you okay know. With that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you well, seen some of the conditions we put PhD students in? Fair enough. It's um, <laughs> an upgrade. What's a moon pool? That was, was my question. Oh, so uh, my, my lack of understanding, I'm going to go back to the movie The Abyss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the opening in the bottom of the boat where you can, you know, scuba divers can go out and have submersible uh, vehicles. Yeah. Instead yeah. Of, it's literally like a pool inside the boat. Yeah, like yeah. octonauts. Exactly, exactly like octonauts. octonauts. Very good, yeah. yeah. Yep, exactly like octonauts. Yeah. Thank you, Captain Barnacle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Dashi. You got the tune. Yeah. Yeah. You got the tune in your head now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the name of the ship should have not been Falcor. It should have been Sebastian. He was the boy from the yeah. Never Ending oh, Story. Yeah. Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a bit boring. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> no one cared about the kid in that show. I saw that film in the theater, the old theater that used to be in Footscray. Oh, no one knows you're it. You're dating yourself. Though. Yeah, well, they turned it into a bingo center, and now I think it's a supermarket. Oh. Anyway, well, just uh, because they used a candle for the projector. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dr. Ray. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Scarlett, what do you got for us? Well, I recently read a paper um, in Nature Climate Change, and that just came out on Thursday or Friday, depending on what time zone you're in. Um, and, yeah, it was really interesting to me for a number of reasons, and I'm just going to give a little bit of background to why I found it quite cool, which was there's this issue in a lot of fields of science where we study animals, we take them out of their complex dynamic environments and we put them into very controlled laboratory conditions. And that's so that we can study specific variables. We need to control everything. Um, so in this case, looking at climate change, we're changing the temperature. Right. So we're putting these animals in labs, keeping everything else constant, changing the temperature. But then that creates this disconnect between what's happening in the lab and what's really happening in the environment, right? right? So... Um, what this study did is look at ectotherms, so that's our that's our cold-blooded animals, our insects, our amphibians, our reptiles, and put them in this environment, changed the temperature as well, but then they included a little bit more complexity, which is what's quite important here, and they added in three species of Drosophila, so fruit fly, right. to compete over the food and see how this changed their energy costs. So with ectotherms, we know that um, environment is very important for them uh, in terms of temperature change because they rely on the outside environment for their... Uh, body temperature to uh, remain constant or change. And so, yeah, what they found was that not only did the temperature increase their energy needs, but also competing with these other species also greatly increased their energy needs. And it just kind of shows us that we need to, as scientists, maybe make our experiments a little bit more ecologically relevant. But also, if we're reading these studies that are so controlled, it might not be taking into account all the complexity that's existing out there. Yeah, And, uh, yeah, maybe... Or, yeah, just taking all that into account, it just made me think a lot about what else are we missing when we're looking at climate change in terms of the environmental complexity. Well, certainly when when you apply a pressure in one direction in any system, it usually leads to behaviours that are new in another direction to compensate. And if you take out that capacity you know, to study that, then all of a sudden you, you're kind of looking at 10% of the problem or less, which could be pretty problematic well yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. um i think that it means our models for climate change and how species are responding are incorrect and yep. we are either highly overestimating or underestimating what's going to happen yeah depressing <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> but true yeah it's, it's so interesting I, I just have this sorry i have this image of these little perspex containers and it's sort of like not quite like what it's like in real life you know so but even with the simplest stuff as you say with even with insects and all sorts of things there's going to be differences in the way they interact compared to what you would normally get um in environmental conditions where they can adapt in different ways yeah cool stuff Stacey, your last news segment for, well, a little while. For a little while, I think, yeah. yeah. What you got? Well, I thought I would return to my roots and obviously give you an update on infectious diseases stuff. Oh. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, we're so sick of that. Um, but a lot of people just changed channel. I know. <laughs> 
Well, um, there's a few news items coming out about um, avian influenza, so bird flu. Yeah. And there's a few, um, you know, headlines that are a bit like, ah, you know, it's going to be the next pandemic. And I just thought I'd give everyone a little bit of an update of where we're at. So um, avian influenza, a highly pathogenic avian influenza is denoted H5N1. Yep. Um, and the reason it's really hit the news lately is that there were two human cases uh, reported in Cambodia late February. Um, a young girl who was 11 years, she unfortunately died due to the infection and okay. then her father. So two human cases, which was relatively novel because Cambodia hasn't seen any human cases of H5N1 um, since 2014. Right. And what did, makes was it, sorry was the transmission between the daughter and father or no. the daughter, okay yeah, yeah good, so yeah. Um, there's no evidence of human to human transmission yep. which is makes us feel a little bit more comfortable so it's likely that they had the same exposure which is to sick or dead um, poultry yep. that were infected with H5N1 um, but what makes it also concerning with these human cases is that concurrently there's quite a lot of outbreaks occurring among wild bird populations in other parts of the world and the circulating strain amongst those wild bird populations seems to be more efficient and tra- at transmitting mm. between birds and so what's happening is that the epidemiology is changing so that we're seeing um, outbreaks occurring in new parts of the world that we haven't seen before um, and so for example in South America uh, 10 countries are experiencing their first outbreak of avian influenza among wild bird populations and there was also some news articles a few weeks ago about um, massive bird sort of die-offs in the coastal regions of Peru and then the infected birds were then being eaten by sea lions and then sea lions were also becoming infected. Wow, really? So, sea lions? Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, that's happening in South America and in North America there's um, – quite a lot of um, commercial and backyard flocks that have been uh, affected. Mm. And then even the bald eagle um, is starting to be affected and that's sort of setting back conservation efforts with the bald eagle. So, um, so yeah, it's more efficiently um, being dis- um, transmitted among those bird populations in new areas and also at new times of the year that we haven't seen before. And that right. sort of brings into play the sort of environmental factors as well. And so what happens is, is that we've got, you know, quite detailed sort of public health investigations and outbreak investigations occurring um, where we need to take a One Health approach. And so we, you may have heard of this One Health concept before, which is really uh, reflecting the complex interactions between humans, animals and the environment. Um, so public health, human public health practitioners are working quite closely with animal um, veterinary mm. public health practitioners um, to implement a range of... Um, control measures but in humans you know it doesn't easily infect humans so um no major cause for concern yet over the last 20 years there's been about 870 odd cases the problem is um the mortality rate is very high it exceeds 50 percent so um uh, so, yeah, they're just wanting to make sure that they're controlling not only those human cases, those sporadic cases that pop up from time to time, but then also it's very important to try to minimise that transmission occurring among wild bird populations to reduce the probability of spillover events occurring. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back to my cave. <laughs> Is the mortality rate in birds that high as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, so most, yeah, the, like these birds are sort of just like dropping out of the sky. It's um, wow. pretty uh, catastrophic amongst wild bird yeah. populations and wow. commercial flocks. And I think they've had to cull like, well, not, yeah. So so in addition to the more natural mortality rate among um, birds that are infected as a control measure, they also have to cull flocks as well. So I think mm. over like 50 million birds have been you know, killed in, in North America either because of infection or um, through public health control measures. So, well, yeah, it's pretty full-on. Yeah, it's pretty full-on stuff. Now, yeah. before uh, before we go to the break, just quickly in the last minute, what are you going to be doing in San Francisco? <laughs> uh, well, um, I've just accepted a postdoctoral um, fellowship with the University of San Francisco. Yep. So I'm still doing COVID work. I'm um, doing some work on uh, COVID vaccination in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, looking at coverage and effectiveness and safety profiles. Um, so I'll do that. Um, and, yeah, relocating three children, a dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're taking your dog. Jeez. We're taking a Very kelpie, nice. a kelpie to California, and <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go. Is that allowed? Uh, <laughs> yeah. By the kelpie? <laughs> no. So it'll be quite yeah. novel. I think my um, husband's going to organise an Instagram account so you can follow my dog in San Francisco. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, kelpie and Kel. Yeah, that's what I reckon. That's what you got to call it. <laughs>
I think Kelpie so. Kelpie and Cal. Kelpie and Cal. Someone's doing that right now. You'd be their husband will do it right now. Because <laughs> some listener is registering that right now. <laughs> uh, very good. Well, uh, we hope you have a great time. You're here for the rest of the show anyway. But um, we're looking forward to hearing all about your adventures over there. You know, it's snowing in LA this week. Oh, yeah. It's nuts. It's yeah. pretty extreme. Um, yeah. I've seen that movie. <laughs> it's not good. It doesn't have a good end. Yeah, um, yeah but th- thank you for uh, welcoming me into the Triple R community. It's been um, great, even though I hit right in the beginning of the pandemic yeah. and I didn't really get didn't get a tour of the studio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't do that for anyone. I really get to the performance space because there was a performance there. Oh right, yeah. 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 Oh, no, He shows you where the tea and coffee machine is. That's about it. Tea and coffee and bathrooms. That's and all bathroom. people need. That's yeah. all people need. Well, it's been uh, it's been great. People wouldn't realize this, but when I first started talking to Stacey after she'd been a guest um, on the show, it was because we wanted to start dealing with some of the health misinformation that was being put out. And in particular, dealing with some of the things that people were unable to absorb, like, you know, one day this improves your health, one day it doesn't. You're getting all these bits of news that are hard to take on and, and comparisons of risk and so forth in the way that information is distributed through the mainstream media is just awful and hard to know, you know, can I still eat salt or is salt, is it salt still bad? What's the, oh no, sugar's the enemy. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's hard to keep up. Yeah. And unfortunately we got, we got another thing to worry about shortly after you came, so we kind of didn't get to do all that. Yeah. But I think we'll we'll get back to that at some stage. That'd be good. I'm happy to do that. It's very hard to unpack those challenges in three minutes, Dr. Shane. Yes, indeed, indeed. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with our first guest, who's a psychologist who works with autistic adults. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Oh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple In the studio with us now is Dr. Lauren Lawson. Lauren is from the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. Welcome to Triple R, Lauren. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you. Now, of course, you and I got to hang out during the week at the State Library for an event for the Olga Tennyson Autism Centre out at La Trobe uh, University, which is um, doing amazing things. But uh, now you're, you're a psychologist and you work primarily with autistic adults. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, what, um, what, what's different in your job working with autistic adults as opposed to other psychologists? Yeah, so um, I, I work as a clinical psychologist. I don't work – my practice isn't primarily with autistic adults, but I do lots of mm. research within this space and yep. uh, work within our training clinic at La Trobe University. I guess the most important thing that I keep in mind when I'm teaching people and also working with autistic adults is they're a person. Yep. Get to know them and get to know what's difficult for them, what are their challenges and what are their strengths and tailoring the intervention to them as an individual. Yeah, interesting. Now, one of the things that I know, you know, we, we spoke about this when we met on Thursday, were the impact of trans-diagnostic factors. Yes. And I think you, you explained it to me well on Thursday and I think I've already forgotten. So, cause, <laughs> but it was, it was, I mean, this is interesting stuff because we, we, don't, we haven't done this in the past as much. Talk us through what trans-diagnostic factors are and how you use them. Yeah. Yeah, so historically, when we think about diagnoses, we think about specific categories. So say anxiety, depression, autism, whatever it is, these are diagnostic classifications that we have defined based Mm. on group averages. And one of the things I'm really interested in with research is looking at what are the factors that sort of underlie lots of conditions. So these conditions, although we have these distinct categories, we see them co-occurring a lot. So a lot of people who have anxiety also have depression. And this is particularly prevalent among autistic adults. So we're really interested in what are the factors that might contribute to the development of multiple diagnostic categories. So we call these trans-diagnostic factors. Mm. And these can be things like sensory sensitivity, repetitive behaviours, rigid thinking, or even sort of um, arousal. So we might define arousal as cognitive arousal, which is kind of how worried we are, how much our thoughts are racing. Or you've got physiological arousal, so how our body is feeling, so heart rate, um, fast breathing, all of those sort of symptoms that we see. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. This this presumably means taking a much more considered approach when you you are working with an autistic person with regards to what you expect as a clinician. You know, like look me in the eyes, Lauren. I'm talking to you. You know, like but you know, there's some elements that you you must have to like do in a more cared way than than typically, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I think it's about making space for the person in the room to share with you how they want to be in that space. And I really try to do that in a first session with any client is try and get a sense of, well, one, 
what's working for you, mm. what isn't working, but also making it clear that in this space, in this room, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you live the life you want. I have no preconceived definitions on what that looks like. Right. And so help me understand you. Tell me how to make this space the most beneficial for you. Yeah. One of the things um, I suppose we, we, we should just mention is the the rate of suicides within autistic adults is far in excess of the general population, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we, do we ever feel for why that's occurring? I think it's a really complex um, area. It's not an area that I specifically do a lot of uh, work in myself. I know we ha I have a colleague at La Trobe University, Dr. Darren Headley, who mm. does a lot of work in this space. But I guess if we think about a lot of autistic people are experiencing challenges that don't fit into the way our society is set up, yep. which means they're trying to fit themselves into a box that isn't designed for them, and that can be deeply upsetting um, and challenging over many, many years. And what we can see is through the process of that and having to be in this space, there's a higher rate of things like sleep problems or anxiety. Mm. And then lo over time, we see that developing into depression and then eventually potentially suicidal ideas or behaviours. Yeah. Now, you mentioned sleep. This is one of the areas that you're sort of into. And, and I think uh, you know, most of us value our sleep. And yeah. you know, if you have a couple of bad nights, you know, people are... I mean, Stacey, a couple of weeks back, you know, came in, she'd had a couple of bad nights sleep. It was awful. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she knows what I'm talking about. I can about. expect this on my yeah. last show. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but sleep with... Um, especially with autistic adults is a, is a real challenge. I mean, what's, what's happening there? And, and are there interventions that help? What are you seeing? Yeah, so what we see, we did a study a couple of years ago with Australian autistic adults looking from 15 to 80 years, and we saw that the rate of poor sleep quality measured by uh, clinical measurement uh, was about 64% of the sample that we had compared wow. to 46% of the okay. non-autistic adults. And I've seen uh, stats internationally showing 70 80% of autistic adults experiencing sleep difficulties. So it's a really big issue, mm. and sleep is one of those things that is so... It's widespread. It's something a lot of people deal with. Um, and it also has such a large impact on our life. You know, mm. we would call sleep a transdiagnostic factor. Right, yeah. You know, struggling with sleep leads or underlies other conditions like anxiety and depression. And it make, it just makes it harder to live your life. Is there a, is there a sort of a, a special type of sleep difficulties that we see in autistic adults? Like a, what I mean by that is some people have trouble getting to sleep. Some mm -hmm. people have trouble staying asleep. Some people have trouble just with the quality and depth of their sleep. What, what are you seeing in the autistic community or is it all of the above? I think all of those things exist um, in the autistic community. And yeah, when we think about insomnia, it does. It includes mm. all of those things. So difficulty falling asleep, difficulty waking up and struggling to get back to sleep or just not feeling refreshed. Yep. And while all of these things do exist, I think we do see a larger proportion um, of autistic adults having issues with what we would call sleep onset latency. So that's how long it takes to get to sleep. Right. So that seems yep. to be a big issue. We also see a higher prevalence of things like circadian rhythm disruption. So just having a different circadian rhythm to the rest of um, the way our society is set up. Mm. And that can be quite um, challenging. Yeah. Are there decent interventions for you know, these sleep problems? Yeah. So historically, um, cognitive behavioral therapy has been the recommended treatment for sleep difficulties and it has a really good efficacy. Um, but there are still a lot of people that don't respond to it. And what we're seeing, particularly when we look within the autistic population is that cognitive behavior therapy can be challenging. It might need modifications, but also autistic adults commonly report not liking it. Right. Okay. And um, so one of the things we've been looking at at La Trobe University is acceptance and commitment therapy and how we might be able to use that within sleep. And so we've designed a, we co-produced a group sleep program that we call Sleepy that uses um, acceptance and commitment therapy across five sessions over six weeks to help people to create a different relationship with their sleep. Now, now what is acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, so it's a... <laughs> It's a big question. It's a, Yeah, it's basically a treatment framework. It is a cognitive behavioral therapy. It looks right. at how we deal with our emotions and our cog um, yeah, our emotions and our cognitions. But instead of trying to sort of re symptom reduce, I think what I like about acceptance and commitment therapy is about how do we move toward living the life we want to live while experiencing symptoms that mm. we maybe don't want to. So it's not so much about getting rid of the anxiety, but it's acknowledging that we have anxiety. We have anxiety for really good reasons. Yeah. But how do we sort of have anxiety and still do the things we really want to do? Yeah. I, I like hearing you say that, that, you know, people have anxiety for really good reasons. Because yeah. so often 
we we hear the term anxiety used as a get out of jail free card for clinicians not knowing how to help someone. Yeah. You know, you've got some anxiety. Maybe you should drink more water. You know, like this kind of stuff. And I think it's really not helpful, is it? Like it, it really, in fact, it makes it worse in many yeah. regards. Yeah. I mean, all of our emotions are there for a reason, evolutionarily speaking. Um, they make us do things that are really good. And anxiety, particularly, if you think about anything that means something to you in your yep. life, you know, doing something that really is important to you. How does it make you feel actually trying to do that? Yeah. Do yeah. you experience feelings of nervousness or anxiety? I mean, today's interview for me is a really good example. I feel really nervous, but it's something that I really want to do is talk about this message. And so I'm still moving toward what I want, but I mm. also feel anxious. Yeah. Stacey's hugely anxious about her trip to San Francisco. I mean, to the point of paralysis, right, Stacey? <laughs> Yeah, it's going to keep coming. Uh, <laughs> so, in terms of um, just in terms of the sleep stuff, though, if we if we look at that from the point of sort of well being, um, sort of aspects of a person's life, mm. you know, we we discussed this very briefly when we were at the event on Thursday. But you know, I, I said to you, it sounds when you go through all these details, like you're describing a chronic illness, yeah. And we don't think of sleep deprivation problems in that way, but in a sense. You know, many of the impacts that it has on your well-being could be described as a chronic illness. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of those well-being parameters um, for people with sleep conditions? Yeah, we see a huge impact. I mean, even specifically within the autistic space, we see impacts of poor sleep on employment, um, on days missed of work, Mm. on quality of life, on mental well-being. Like, even if we look at these positive elements, not just the mental disorders that we would call anxiety and depression, sleep takes us away. From yeah. all of those things. Yeah, it's problematic. And before we go, what would you like to see people be doing more to, you know, help our autistic adults within the community to, you know, be engaged more in a way that's easy for them and, and you know, not us kind of making the world toxic? Yeah, that's such a big question, Shane. <laughs> uh, I think it's about treating everyone as an individual and really listening to them and valuing what they bring. Um, Every person has a value to society. And I think it's really important to recognize that and pay attention Mm. to those people around you and listen. Yeah. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in today. It's great to see you again within just a few days after having such a great conversation about this uh, during the week. I think um, you're doing amazing work. And I think uh, the more we consider sleep as more like a chronic illness and and give it the attention that it deserves, um, the better off I think people will be. So thanks so much for coming on Einstein and Gogo. No worries. Thank you for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Lauren Lawson from the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. We're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, look out. We're going to be talking about nutrition. And you're going to have to really listen hard, Stacey, because you're going to the US. <laughs> it's big portion size I've got to uh, get prepared for. <laughs> Barbara will take care of you. She'll be back in just a moment after this uh, musical interlude. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. It's an hour of science. If you haven't worked it out by now, we're in trouble. In the studio with us now is Dr. Barbara Cotoso. Barbara is a senior lecturer in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University. Barbara, it is a delight to have you in the studio. This is your second interview in about four years. Last time was on Zoom. Welcome back. Thank you. This is actually my third interview. Third interview. Two of them on Zoom, first time in the studio. Oh, no. Yeah, finally. Yes. I, people wouldn't remember this, but you were the first interview we did when we went into lockdown and I could no longer see anyone and I was in here by myself. So <laughs> yours yeah. was the first face that came up on the Zoom. It was a great challenge that day and another one here. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great <laughs> to have to you in the studio. Now, um, we all want to talk about food all the time. Sometimes people don't know this, but I'll tweet things at Barbara if I'm not sure if I should eat them. And she's very kind and says, oh, God, <laughs> usually exasperated with what I'm consuming. But um, one of the things that you've been working on more recently, because last time we had you on, we talked about Brazil nuts, which are disgusting. I mean, I try them. I can't How eat them. How dare you? <laughs> but they've got, uh, is it selenium? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brazil nuts are the main food source for selenium, which is a micronutrient with antioxidant properties. And it's been my main focus of research. Yeah. And is it okay? I don't like them. I still have to eat them, don't I? You still have to eat them once a day. <laughs> one a day. One, one, they're not one small. A week. They're not That's small. Yeah. They're not small. 
if you don't like them, if you <laughs> like them, they're pretty tiny. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to see it. Um, but you've also been working on the issue of ultra-processed foods. And I think this is something that a lot of people are very concerned about and just how much these things affect us because this is a relatively new thing in our diet in a sort of cultural sense. If we think of, you know, over the decades, we, you know, we've got decades of it now, but we don't have hundreds of years of, of doing this. We, we sort of have a relatively new impact on, on the community. But you're looking at cognitive performance, which is freaking me out. What is happening there? Is there a, are you seeing a connection between ultra-processed foods and cognitive performance? Yeah, that's it. So this um, ultra-processed food, it's, it was never my um, area of research, um, but I'm, because I'm always interested in understanding the associations between the diet and cognition. Mm. I came across uh, some studies linking the consumption of ultra-processed foods with chronic disease, such right. as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, and obesity. And then I thought, well, these conditions are somehow linked to dementia. Mm. Is there any connection between the consumption of ultra-processed foods and um, age-associated cognitive decline? Right. And then we did the first uh, study in the subject, so... We investigate. We used uh, um, an American cohort of individuals, which is a representative of the U.S. population, and they consume a lot of ultra-processed food. And we could see that in that population, uh, all the adults who consumed more ultra-processed foods presented with a worse cognitive performance in one of the cognitive tests, which wow. is animal fluency. And animal fluency um, is a test that is commonly uh, um, commonly is not well performed by people with dementia so these people that we uh, assess they don't have dementia but because they are older adults they have a higher risk um, for for dementia and it's interesting that we could see uh, this link one of the immediate questions is if you stop eating the processed foods do you do better on the tests that's a great question and i can sort of answer that to you because in our study, when we analyzed all the individuals and we had over 2,000 people uh, involved in this study, uh, we did not see a link. But then when we separated, separated those who had an underlying condition, mm. any chronic disease from those who did not have, we saw a different response. Oh, wow. And so we what we saw is what we called reverse cause, potentially a reverse causality. So those who had an underlying condition possibly changed their diet, they improved their diet, mm-hmm. Because they they went to the doctor and the doctor told them to cut sugar, cut you know yep. uh, ultra processed food somehow, so they performed better in the test when compared to those who did not have any chronic condition. Oh, because they so, had no medical intervention. Correct. Yep. Yep. Correct. So they kept going on with their diet, yep. which had high uh, concentration of high uh, ultra processed foods. So this suggests that perhaps yes. At any time point, if you improve, if you decide to improve your diet, that will lead to some benefits. Hmm. Uh, it, it sounds like it's. Sorry, Stacy, she was hogging the mic. Um, uh, it, it sounds like um, it's it's not just a correlation; it's a causal link. Um, but I was just wondering, or maybe it isn't. Uh, I, I'm of course not an expert. Are there other factors like exercise or other things about lifestyle that come into play, or is diet's really the big dominant one? Uh, so. In our study, we cannot infer causality because it was a cross-sectional study. So we observed these people at only one time point, right? So we cannot infer causality. But we know that all the lifestyle factors do affect the risk for cognitive uh, decline. And these factors were considered in our analysis. So um, the presence of other disease and physical activity, education. So these were all factors that we considered when doing our analysis. And despite physical activity or, or education, we still could see a link between mm. the consumption of ultra-processed foods and cognitive performance. Okay, thank you. I just aside, Stacey's going to have to watch out. They put sugar in the bread in the States. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, you get it when you um, clock in with your passport. They give you a little spoonful. Helps the medicine get out. <laughs> so building on that a little bit, did you find that there was much individual variation between people? Are some people really good at coping with high like ultra processed foods and some are worse due to genetic reasons as well or 
Yeah, what's yeah. that individual yeah. variation? We don't have an answer for that one yet, but it's in the pipeline. So I'm now interested in doing a similar study here in Australia. Two other studies were published since we published our paper, and they provided some longitudinal information. One was performed in Brazil, the other one in the UK. And longitudinally, they could see um, a high risk for dementia among those who had a higher consumption of ultra-processed foods. And now I'm interested in doing some similar things here in Australia. And also, I'm interested in investigating the link between the effect of the diet particularly for ultra-processed foods, and the presence of APOE4 genotype, which, which is the, the main genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. So hopefully we'll have more information in the near future. Jeez, it's interesting. Now, I'm going to have to ask you, because you know, I'm going to out myself here. I had hash browns for breakfast. I'm just saying it. That's, that's all I had. Uh, I was in a rush. But, hey, it's a cooked breakfast. It's got to be good, right? Is that okay, Barbara? Um, I, think, I think it comes down to how they were prepared, actually. Because in this, it's, uh, it's actually a great question because it brings some confusion when we speak about ultra-processed foods. Mm. And it's, it comes down to the concept of how they were made. And I'll give a good example, bread, you know, a loaf of bread that you can get at the bakery or at the supermarket, a packaged loaf of bread. The the packaged loaf one with so many uh, li- items in the list of ingredients that yeah. you don't understand, that would be considered a high, uh, ultra-processed ultra food. And the one yeah. you get from the bakery is not. So it comes down to how you get the food. When, when we talk about ultra-processed too, like there's, there's various elements, I assume, too. I remember once getting on a particular airline in Australia, no names mentioned, but yeah, that narrows it down to, what, three or four, um, and, and I bought a muffin and it had an expiry date like nine months into the future, and I thought, that doesn't sound good. And, and so, you know, there's some things that have huge numbers of preservatives, um, but then there's other things where they have huge number of flavour additives or chemical processing to make them a certain type of structure. Which ones are we... Are we worried about all of them or are there... Yeah, we are. Um, so ultra-processed uh, foods, they, they were heavily industrialised mm. and they contain some modified ingredients to increase flavour, um, increase shelf life, so that's why your muffin yep. could last for nine months. Um, and they have lots of additives that make them more appealing mm. and cheaper. Yep. So it's common that we see, uh, and bread is again another good example, if you go have a, a, and get a loaf of bread at the bakery, it will probably cost you more than the packaged version at the supermarket. Right. Yeah. But that's and, – and we know too because like the, one of the things I find interesting is when you get something from the supermarket, you tend to rely on the use-by date or best-before date, whereas if you buy something from a, a fresh bakery, you tend to rely on looking at the thing. You, yeah? Yeah. Um, well, they should also have uh, – from the bakery, they should also have the best-before date. I go to so a different bakery. <laughs> but, just, but hey, you know, uh, in in terms of the um, you know things we should avoid, are there, are there key things? You know, like Stacey's about to go to the US. It's going. It's a dog's breakfast, right? I mean, there's stuff everywhere. What what sort of things are important to avoid? And assuming I'm eating a Brazil nut a day, yeah, I'm going to avoid hash browns, and I'm going to replace <laughs> it with Brazil nuts based on uh, advice here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that uh, rather than focusing on what to avoid, we should focus on what to get into our diet. So always prefer fresh food, Um, always when you can. So fresh veggies, Mm. uh, fresh fruits, and less industrialized um, uh, uh, food. So if you can get your bread from the bakery in the U.S. rather than from the supermarket, I think it would be good for you. Yeah. Thanks for the tip. So, Barbara, in terms of um, the the last thing I wanted to ask you about is some of the food labeling. So, I, I was just in in prep for this interview. I was looking through my fridge, and you know we have this star system in terms of this seems to be just random to me. I was looking at you know I had this thing of uh, caramel topping, and then I had this other thing, and they had the same numbers of stars. I'm thinking one of these I can look at, I know is really bad for me, and the other one seems like it's got nothing bad for me in it at all. Weirdly. 
how how are consumers to engage with that? Is that yeah, that's um, rather complicated, I would say, uh, because the the star rating system works uh, based on the concentration of some nutrients and mm-hmm. some compounds, rather than the um, industrialization level. Right. So that this uh, concept of ultra processed food comes from a new classification, which is called Nova. So that was published perhaps in 2010, 12, so not too long ago, if we think. And it's not encompassed in the, the star rating system. So it's, right. it's, it's complicated and it's yeah. confusing. Yeah, because you kind of want to, you're going to overall good feel for, you know, if I'm buying something, like, for example, if I buy milk, I'm probably okay with some of the processing there. Right? I mean, there's some aspects of that that are important. Um, that's okay because if you think that if you consider like pasteurization yeah. um, as as the process we're referring to, yeah. I don't see any problem. And that would the pasteurization process wouldn't make that milk um, a ultra processed food right. because pasteurization is a, a sort of a, a process required to maintain the quality of the food, but doesn't actually add anything bad to that it. We're consuming, yeah. yeah. It's a minefield. It's a minefield. Well, look, yeah. it's, it's good to hear that you're looking into this, especially the cognition stuff, and I know that's something, you know, we need to minimise the impacts. And for those who already have chronic illnesses, um, minimising the impact of what, what can make those worse is obviously, you know, a, a key element to treatment and care. Yeah, correct, correct. And uh, just of note, I think we, we should be mindful of how much ultra-processed food we are also giving to our children mm-hmm. um, because children in general are always very exposed to these uh, sort of foods and we need to be mindful of that because here we are speaking of um, age-associated cognitive decline, but this is a situation that comes, that evolves throughout life, right? So uh, we need to modify and, and maximize the dietary factors in order to preserve our cognition. Yeah, a wave of guilt just ran upon me. <laughs> I think all parents, you know... You, it was you, not the intention. Oh, uh, you know, I think we all, you know, every, everyone, you know, sometimes you take shortcuts and I think uh, it's about minimising those and trying to make sure that you have the things that you need each week to, to keep the kids healthy and the rest of us healthy as well. Yeah. Barbara, great to finally have you in the studio. Uh, good luck with this ongoing work. I always love hearing about all your nutrition stuff that you, you put up on Twitter and so forth and I promise I will try again to eat some Brazil nuts. Okay, looking forward to your tweet. (laughs) I've been called out there. (laughs) Folks, uh, that was Dr. Barbara Cardoso, um, a senior lecturer from the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University. We're going to take a short break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, uh, Ray's going to teach us something new about whales. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. Ray's going to teach us all about whales. Something? Something new. Actually, yep. you know, I was just listening to the last ad and, you know, the background music kind of sounded like whale song. <laughs> okay. um, so actually, this is a really interesting discovery about toothed whales, but it's about how they, they make their clicks and for echo, echolocation and communication. But first, I just want to get baleen whales out of the way because they communicate differently. So baleen whales, you know, like humpback whales, which mm-hmm. to me is like the most awesome whale there is. But um, – <clears throat> How they're able to make sound, and this is really about how how we how how whales communicate, is you use your respiratory system, and both sets of whales do, but they do it differently. So baleen whales have it's called a U fold. It's kind of like the larynx, um, and they take air from their lungs and they squeeze it into this laryngeal cavity, going through this U fold, and the vibrations there are how humpback whales or, or baleen whales put together sound. And so it's it's a larynx based way to communicate. And what's interesting is. It's not like tooth whales, which are clicks and pulses and echolocation and really fast. Humpback whales are kind of slow. I think the record, somebody watched a recorded humpback whale singing a song for 22 hours. I mean, they, they, they get their complexity by adding more and more pieces to the song. It's, it, it takes time. But they have big lungs and they're able to do that. Now. Is it always the same song? No, no, it evolves over time, and they can track different yeah. whales by their song, and they, they listen to them a lot. The, oh, so that was the point. You can track them. So there's parts of the song that are the yeah, repetitious. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're repetitious, and they can yeah. see it evolve. Now, it's weird. Humpback whales, the males are really the ones that sing. Mm. Um, but in terms of communication, it's a little bit different, and it's not for hunting. So if we look at tooth whales, so we're talking porpoises, dolphins, killer whales, sperm whales, we're talking about things where they we, – we've always known that they have clicks and – they use echolocation for hunting prey, and that 
the debate, part of the debate. So the first part of this is how do they make sound and where does it come from in their body? So it's kind of hard to figure out which part of the whale is making a sound. It could be in the lungs and the larynx. It could be up in the nasal cavity, but it's not like you can ask a whale and it's not like they're easy to probe. Um, so, you know, think about that. How do you figure out what part of the body is working? And so, um, and, and the other thing is respiratory systems, which are how we make speech rely on pushing air back and forth between a cavity or over vocal cords or something that requires air. But when yeah. whales dive down, their lungs get compressed. That gas gets compressed. The volume's like 10% of what it is when they're at the surface. So even trying to figure out how those air cavities move around is actually quite difficult. And so in toothed whales, they went, well, something's different because the clicks and stuff is way faster than the way baleen whales speak. And there were, there were a number of hypotheses kicking around about where. So do, they, uh, do, do toothed whales use their lungs and something similar to baleen whales, or do they do it in their nasal cavity? And so there was some evidence to say, well, you know what? All the laryngeal muscles aren't really moving when they're making noise. And you can kind of do echolocation of a whale, like where's the sound coming from, from outside the whale. And they think, oh, we think it's around the nasal cavity. But how do you figure this out? And then how do you figure out the, the anatomy of how it's, how it's working? So researchers from Denmark were able to actually probe living whales, porpoises and, and, and dolphins, to actually observe their nasal cavity. And so what they did was, and the article says they used two trained dolphins and three trained porpoises to actually put endoscopes into the whale to actually look at their nasal cavity. And I'm thinking, what? I don't care. I don't care. I, like, I've had an endoscopy. They had to knock me out. I don't yeah, care yeah. how trained the dolphin is. I don't see that as a comfortable procedure. <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah. You, got to go, you got to have a sleepy sleep. I've, I've had that too. Yeah. And, and so, it's the best sleep I've had. You know, it's I, great. And, and, and the thing is, why this is a big deal is normally you can look at a whale when it's dead and do it as a, yeah, a yeah. dissection, but it really doesn't tell you what parts are moving. So anyway, they looked in, and, 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 and the short story is all the echolocation comes from the nasal cavity. But what's weird about this, and this is an evolution in parallel thing, is that there's lots of different ways that animals have used the respiratory system to make sound, but they use different bits of the body or their anatomy to do that. So we, we have the larynx. Birds have the cirrhix, which is a, it operates in a similar way. But how universally, how these things operate is oh, something called myoelastic aerodynamic principles. And so what, what this is kind of cool is that, you know, we have vocal cords and we know they vibrate. And our, 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 our larynx modulates those muscles, but the actual vibration that makes the sound is not an active muscle. The vibration is because we're pushing air over effectively a string, and that vibrating then resonates and makes vo the voice sound. Hmm. So it's not that you have a muscle that's like trying to play a banjo. The air's actually passing over <laughs> and causing a banjo, and you're kind of modulating the tension of the string. Yeah, Stacy's more banjo-like than me. <laughs> yeah. So, so after after uh, after uh, they did, they had to do both endoscopies and and, and dissections on, on on dolphins and whales. So they actually found in the nasal cavity, they uh, they actually have these two regions where they push air back and forth in the nasal cavity over what's called they called it a phonic lip. There's two phonic lips because it's not vocal cords. It's a different part of anatomy, um, and it's in the nasal cavity. And, and I guess I'm like, well, I guess you call it a phonic lip because whales already have lips. That's where their teeth are. So it's it's just in the nasal cavity. Yes. So if it was already known to be called the phonic lip, as in phonics, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. voice, noise, why did they have to do the research? Well, it sounds because, like someone else already figured well, no, that this, out. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the hypothesis, but they've never been able to observe it. Uh -huh. So with the endoscopy, they had a 7,200 frames per second camera looking at how this worked. Because what they didn't know was, does the phonic lip move back and forth with active muscles to create the sound? Or does it work the similar way with this myoelastic aerodynamic principle where you get this vibration of the muscles with passing air through it. So not only did they, they see the phonic lip moving, they measured the pressure in between going to between the two, yeah. two cavities to actually figure out, you know, it is a very similar way for speech pattern. It's just, it uses a different part of the body of the anatomy to do it. And you think, Oh, well, that's pretty cool. And I feel sorry for the dolphins and the porpoises, but I guess they, they were all right. Um, and you go, okay, so they figured out the anatomy and, and how it works you think, wow, that, that's pretty cool. We've answered how how dolphins and toothed tooth whales make those clicks and things. And then they started starting to correlate, well, what's that ability like? So they, if you listen to dolphins and porpoises, they go over four ranges of frequency, and there's a lot of different strains to it. 
And so they started listening and were able to see what noise was made when the phonic lip did this or that. And what they really found out is that the speech of dolphins and whales and toothed, toothed whales in general is incredibly complex and they have vocal registers. So vocal registers are these different aspects of speech that we use. So the ones they had were was vocal fry, which is the really low, yeah. that, that, that kind of vocal fry. Stacy? I don't think I can replicate that. Well, <laughs> and, and then they have the chest register, which is the normal one for talking. And then there's a falsetto one. Now, I was at a party last night. I can't do falsetto, but I'm taking volunteers if anybody wants to try. Go on, it's your fist. Falsetto is the really high. Like, yeah, hi, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure dolphins everywhere are going to understand you guys. Um, and, and so it, it's these different vocal registers that allow for complex communication. And it's well beyond just the clicks that you might think about echolocation, yeah. that these form different resonant frequencies. And, um, and, and so it, it's actually a much more complex vocal communication. And in fact, one thing we don't understand is you hear clicks. And eventually, if a human hears a click, if the click frequency gets very fast, which they found out by this high-speed camera, they can resonate really quickly. At some point, a human's click becomes a pitch. So you don't hear clicks anymore. You hear a pitch. We still don't know for like a dolphin or a porpoise what frequency that happens to, hmm. but it would also change how they communicate. Now, the crazy thing is about vocal registers. We as people are like, well, one of the things that differentiates us from the animals is we can speak. And birds can chirp and, you know, there's sometimes, but language is, is the foundation of the fact that we have great vocal registers. There's only two species that have vocal registers so far, humans and crows. So the idea that toothed whales have a, have a vocal register to them it's very uh, cool. It yeah. is very cool. And they're underwater. In, in fact, the underwater is a big deal because of the way the phonic lip resonates. A lot of the, the sounds that actually come out wouldn't be heard in air. Mm. It's because sound travels faster in water and you get this resonance within their nasal cavity. Yeah. Um, so it, it's actually, water is actually a big deal for it. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. Whales are fascinating. They are. Yeah. I, we, we've talked about whales so many times on the show. There's always something new. There, there is. I think, I think Dr. Ray's done a few. We were a whale aficionado, I think. Yeah, here and there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and, and, and good. bees, but I have to give that one up and now. And bees, yeah. yeah. I'm not, yeah. not brave enough to ever talk about a bee story on, on, on air now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, well, you know, we can always ask Scarlett questions about bees, if need be. If it comes up. If need uh, be. If need be. Did you mean to uh, do that? Uh, yeah. Well, you know. I didn't mean I'm just good. Yeah. You're humming now. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, yes. July show, Stacy, for a while. Yeah, yeah, between uh, Stacy leaving, it's been a whale of a show. <laughs> Thankfully, folks, we've only got a minute and a half left. <laughs> uh, just a big reminder to you, we do have that show that we're doing live in the performance space on the 26th of March. So Dr. Jen and I will be running a program uh, essentially called Triple uh, R and Einstein and Gogo present an endometriosis special broadcast and we'll be talking all things endometriosis for the Awareness Month, which if you haven't uh, realised, we are currently in, which is really important. Um, but we're going to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. Thanks, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Thanks. for the story. Stacey, little tear coming down. Yeah. Very sad to see you go. Bit Hope- sad. Everything goes well. But we'll talk to you again, no doubt. We'll try and get you online or something. Yeah, I'll see you on um, the Zooms. That'll be cool. And Scarlett, welcome to the party. Yeah, this was great. Uh, but I'm sorry to see you go, Stacey. As soon as I start, you're going. <laughs> yeah, a yeah see, you got my replacement on. already. Gosh. Seat's still warm. Didn't I was waiting wait. in the silence. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we even wait until the, so the seat got cold? Did we? No. <laughs> no. Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, we'll see everything go. Uh, but you know, you're still going to be around, so we'll get you on every now and then, as we do Gracie from Texas. Yeah. So if we can do Texas, we can do San Francisco, we I can. figure. I can be your right. US correspondent. Indeed. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We'll be back with more science next week until then have a fantastic sunday and we will talk to you soon Triple R. hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einstein a go-go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.